Unveiled podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm your host. Uh, this is a podcast that explores the intersection of psychedelics and spirituality. And we are interviewing different guests that are contributing to the world of psychedelics. And, uh, and for me, uh, my heart is really around understanding these plant medicines as entheogens, as incredible uh, amplifiers of, of, of beauty, uh, of the divine that is in it with all of us. And so I'm joined today with Dr. Brian Richards. And uh, Dr. Richards' uh, clinical and research interests include meaning-centered psychotherapy, mystical experience, brain science-based approaches to vibrant health and wellness. He's a lead psychologist on an innovative simultaneous group administration high-dose psilocybin trial with cancer patients at the Bill Richards Center for Healing in Rockville, Maryland. And we know that Bill Richards is your father, and I've had an opportunity to interact uh, and interview him and beautiful, beautiful uh, legacy that he is leaving. And you were picking up that mantle, Brian. So welcome to Unveiled. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks so much, Peg. Really honored to be here and glad to jump right in. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, uh, let me just take you a little bit back here. Tell me how you first got uh, involved with psychedelics. Obviously, you have a father uh, who has been since the 60s, one of the, the primost uh, thinkers in this field. So, but how did you first get involved in psychedelics yourself, Brian? So uh, my, my mom and dad many, many years ago would work at Maryland Psychiatric Research Center Spring Grove in uh, Catonsville, Maryland, administering LSD, DPT, or dipropyltryptamine, an injectable psychedelic to people with a cancer diagnosis, major depression, et cetera. And so growing up, it was really normative for me that my parents were working with um, psychoactive substances, and it really didn't register as at all unusual. Um, and so they were both hard workers. And um, my introduction to psychedelics really began in earnest when I began a postdoctoral fellowship at the Johns Hopkins Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, uh, Bill, Roland Griffiths, others. And really, um, at that point, beginning to ask the question after this, quote unquote, deep freeze, where no research was really being done, and it was anathema to even think about it and relegated relatively to the fringe for a number of years. Um, really, the invitation to ask the scientific questions, what are, what do these medicines or psychedelic drugs do? Are they abusable? Can they be helpful? Let's learn more about them because people are taking them. Mm. Right. And so you went into like, I actually want to rewind a little bit more. Like after high school, do you go, hey, I want to become a therapist because, you know, my dad's in this field or what? Like, how did you even make the choice to get into uh, the field of, of, of psychotherapy? And, uh, you know, as because obviously you did your graduate work there. What, what kind of drew you into that? Yeah, thank you. I started pre-med in college and I was thinking probably to move on into psychiatry at some point. And I wanted a career where I could invite people to be their authentic selves and completely open and also be helpful to people in a really sincere way. So I didn't like sales. I didn't want to be doing something in finance or other industries. I really felt like I, I wanted a career where I was helpful to people, connected deeply with them. And about halfway through college, it became apparent to me, actually from talking with a number of really disheartened psychiatrists who felt like they were an extension of big pharma and did not find their work very meaningful. 
um, that I thought I might move into psychology. And so I actually changed majors and began a psychology major and graduated um, and then went on to graduate school and am glad to be working in that way with people. Wow. Um, you know, I have your, your, your father has, has told this story uh, other times, but I mean, in my, one of my conversations with him, you know, he talked about when your mom passed away, you know, here she's been working with cancer patients and then she gets cancer. And, and he just talks about, you know, what that process was like letting go. Uh, you know, you were young at the time. How old were you when your mom, when your mom passed away, Brian? I was 11 years old when yeah. she died. Yeah. Um, and it was my first experience with death. Mm. And so I think that um, that really was a cataclysm in my life of mm. everything kind of falling away. And I think developmentally, um, I mean, I was the only person in my entire class whose mom had died from cancer. Mm. And there wasn't really a space to, other than people expressing sympathy and trying to be understanding, um, I think I kind of ended up really moving along a different developmental path where really at that point in my life, I was asking some of the questions around what is the meaning of life? If something like this can happen, then uh, what kind of God would kill, uh, you know, yeah. my mom, who is a loving, warm hearted human being, a dedicated nurse. Um, and so it was really very painful for me, I think, to um, live through that and begin to find some path of making sense of how capricious and unfair life itself can be, but also to go more deeply than that around different spiritual texts, practices, um, what really helps with that kind of existential suffering. And so um, that really helped, I think, ignite my seeking early in life to really come to my own unique understanding around what it means to be alive, what we contribute to this world, the present moment, spiritual practice. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's uh, these moments, particularly when you're, when you're young like this, you know, uh, you have these experiences and they really define you and they begin to set you on a trajectory of saying, I, I don't have the luxury of not thinking about those big questions because my primary caregiver is gone. And so it, it feels like my world's upside down. And so you started to seek for ways of how do I navigate death and dying? And I mean, for an, for 11, 12 year old, that's unbelievable, right? There's a real depth there. And that tells me so much about why you are kind of landing in the place you're in right now. Again, working with cancer patients, with dying patients, working with, you know, these altered state experiences that allow people to ask the biggest questions of their life, right? I mean, we know now that when we're dealing with this, because we, we also do group work with end-of-life patients, and, um, and so what we, what we notice is that as they talk about pain and death and their fear of dying, the, the, the existential crisis is the biggest one that they're facing. It's yes, pain physically, we can manage that. But these big questions of the heart are the ones that they really don't really have, you know, frameworks to handle. And these kinds of medicines and group work can provide them a way to get in touch with these deep places inside. And so I can see why this is the water that you want to be living in and, and working in now. It's really beautiful. I'm really grateful um, that these medicines exist at all. Because I feel like the possibility of people having an, a spontaneous mystical experience, or even with a lot of dedicated prayer or meditative practice, 
those kinds of expanded state experiences that have the potential to be profoundly meaningful are almost, I wouldn't want to say effortless, but available to us, accessible to us with these medicines, the right therapy envelope, adequate preparation, set and setting, uh, support throughout. Um, so it's almost as if the ability to go deeper really is accessible to us. Uh, we have to just kind of choose it um, and be prepared for it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it is, it's profound. And I, you know, it's, uh, you know, you get to stand on the shoulder of those that come before, just like me. And, you know, in your circumstance, uh, you get to work alongside your father in these kind of final years. Uh, that must be really beautiful and rewarding for you. What's that experience been like working with your dad in altered state work? Well, he's been a wonderful teacher. He's my dad. So of course I, I disagree with him often. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but nevertheless, um grateful to grateful that I have a father who is so lovingly and warm-heartedly and patiently contributed to the field. Mm. Because there was a time that for a couple of decades he was a single dad raising two kids, an eleven year old and a thirteen year old as a psychologist, then in private practice and really finding his way through. And it really wasn't until 1999 that Hopkins um, kind of began to really look into psychedelic medicine and Bill became directly involved with Roland and others on that team to resume psychedelic research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's beautiful. And I'm, you know, I've, I've seen you uh, in, in one of the in one of the documentaries, I forget which one, but just seeing you both in that shot, you know, him there and you there, it's just like, for me at the, you know, I'm a father of four daughters. They're all in their, they're all in their twenties. Uh, my wife and I have been together 33 years. And so these family and the connection is really for me, vital, a, a vital integration tool for how these medicines, you know, what, what, what does good look like? Well, to me, good looks like finding ways that these medicines not just reconnect us with ourselves at the deeper places, but how they connect us back into community, back into our families, you know, back into our community. And so when I see you and your father working alongside, this is a testimony to what is possible, you know, connection, openness, authenticity, you know, love, family, these, this is, this is different than, you know, what most people think LSD was doing in the 60s, just people getting high and dancing. That's great, too. I'm not against that. But I love when we see these examples of true community and family connection around how these medicines can, can be used. So very, very beautiful. I just want to honor that. Thank you for saying that. It warms my heart to hear that. And, yeah. um, I try to remind myself um, to also really be grateful and appreciative and present centered around what we're doing right now and continuing to learn and grow together. Mm. Let me, uh, I'm going to, before I get into your work right now, I got one more question, Brian, do you, um, and I don't know if you're open to talking about this, but what were your, um, what were your first, you know, experiences like being in an altered state? Uh, what was that a profound experience for you? What was that like? Uh, can you talk about that? My first experience was in college with friends and um, probably a moderate dose and really helped me appreciate the potential, like the deepening mystery of there being way more than the outer world and experience of life and the 
insecure variable self-concept um, that there was really something much much deeper than that that was possible what i remember most from that experience was uh, kind of deep camaraderie and um kind of a shared experience with friends mm. uh, and time in nature where the absolute aliveness of everything was really apparent to me um the importance of kind of being steady with and confronting the wrathful frightening terrifying aspects and seeing them also as teachers to learn from to develop some insight from mm -hmm. um and also i think recognizing that uh this was potentially a pathway to to really deepen my experience of life yeah i love i mean that to me that's almost um like that's kind of those are the heartbeats that really drew me into this work as well when i had my first experience uh it just it like blew open the doors on you know my background is is kind of theology and uh uh and philosophy and so that's my graduate work is in world religions and so this was a, uh, a, my first direct encounter with the divine. It was no longer a head knowledge. It wasn't just this, you know, out there deity. It was this divine rushing in in a personal way, you know, inside, interior. It just felt so different uh, to experience that, you know, we'll call it a non-dual experience where, you know, this otherness has been collapsed. And now I feel connected to life, to nature, to the divine in ways that I'd never before. And that just radically changed everything that I wanted to explore and, and look at, right? The potential of this work, both for creativity, for spiritual development, for families, for parenting, for healing mental health, and you know, all the all the other things that I could see what what could happen, right? It just all opened to me, right? So yeah, that's I connect so much in those those early experiences of wonder and awe. Yeah, beautifully said. And I, I actually, I love the term experiential medicine. Mm. There's mind manifesting psychedelic, but it goes beyond name and form entirely. Some of these more mystical type experiences where people are beyond their physical body, beyond any aspect of the story in their mind about who they were for a time. And then that infinite aspect of consciousness can be obliterating, enlightening, many, many things, bewildering. Um, so I, I love the term experiential medicine because mm. all of our studies, part of what emerges is this abiding theme that we really do have an innate wisdom that is very difficult to access or kind of abide in much of the time as we're distracted by all the vicissitudes of our lives. But it is within us already always in the present moment and so then the role of the therapist is often one of assistant mm. really creating a, a safe therapeutic envelope so there's nothing the person needs to be vigilant to outside of themselves and they really can go deeply inward and in a sense reconnect with or remember perhaps things they'd forgotten mm -hmm. yeah and and experiencing parts of themselves that um, that is like, it's like, you know, you, you talk about this inner healing wisdom and, you know, I hear people like, uh, 
Dick Schwartz, you know, uh, a founder of IFS, you know, and he, he talks about that this is not something he's trying to make up, but he's saying this is what I was, I learned from people who are doing this kind of work, you know, as he was working with people in, in you know, it's, it's a type of altered state when you do an IFS kind of work, right? You're working with people. Now, when you give them plant medicine, the map opens up so much easier for them. They can get close to these exiled parts. They can get closer to these managers. And so they had this new connection inside that they've never had. It was like a chaos inside. And now all of a sudden there's a bit of order. There's a bit of a wisdom that comes on board. And, uh, you know, your core wise self gets activated and is a present to you. It's unbelievable to, uh, to work with people like that. And also how profoundly useful those experiences are in a very practical everyday way. Maybe I could give you mm -hmm. one case study, a uh, 43-year-old woman who had a positive outcome to her breast cancer surgery uh, was herself a yoga mindfulness instructor, um, but nevertheless was just completely debilitated by the fear of recurrence, meaning any signal in her body, a, a pain, discomfort, headache. Um, she would just cascade into catastrophic panic, distress, um, see one specialist after another, after another. Um, everything was ruled out, lots of invasive testing, but felt like she was frozen with fear. And so for her, and again, this was a 25 milligram high dose uh, open label study. Um, at one point, she decided um, and this was not disclosing to me what she was doing until retrospectively when she was um, integrating and processing the experience. She decided that she was going to hunt her fear, meaning pretty courageous in this expanded state that's very visually developed, very emotionally intense. She decided that uh, she'd been so tormented by her fear, she was going to look for it and see if she could find it. And so in her own mind, she began searching um, through all these corridors and hallways, through these doorways, and found that her fear did not want to be discovered as she was seeking it. And finally, she did encounter it. And the fear as it manifested in that moment was this adorable little spiky porcupine hedgehog. And... Um, her first her first attribution to it was tenderness but it was kind of frightened of her and it was just trying to keep her safe by letting her know everything that could happen that she might need to pre be prepared for or anticipate and so she, she actually picked up this little spiky porcupine and with affection um kind of entered into a dialogue with it mm -hmm. and so for her, that symbol, a very personally meaningful symbol, was one of just no longer embodying the fear in this inchoate way that was in, impacting her quality of life, debilitating. But now she could be in dialogue with the fear as it manifested mm. and had compassion for and understanding for the fear that it was simply trying to warn her of danger you know, maybe it is or could be a recurrence or a metastasis. The fear is there to help. Mm. And so it be, became for her a totally different attribution to these otherwise discomfortable, alarming sensations in the body and thoughts that would take on a life of their own. 
So there's in that thread of looking inward and our own innate wisdom, those symbols, those different entities, different encounters or experiences we might have, have the potential also to be incredibly useful to us in a pragmatic way in our lives years after the experience. Yeah. Wow. And so I was just so struck by that. So profound. Like, you know, and as you, as you know, like you could be in someone for five to 10 years in therapy in, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and never be able to get that kind of breakthrough, right? You just can, they get, get stuck in kind of a cognitive loop often. And if this is a completely, you know, these medicines allow your, as, as we know, the default default mode network to relax. And she has a different encounter with the primary consciousness of this, of this fear. And she can move toward it with softness and compassion in ways that she's not in the fear state running. She can actually turn toward it and then love it. And it's just this soft little, little, you know, I, I just imagine a little hedgehog that just needs to be loved and tenderly embraced rather than, you know, bracketed away in fear. And so just that process of turning and softening towards oneself, it probably just begins to all that, all of that uh, anger and that fear in the body can loosen. You know, it's a, a deep somatic experience for her. Exactly right. And all from within her. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So profound. So t take me into some of the work you're doing right now in groups. As you know, uh, I have a real passion to really see uh, an, another model that we can do in community. Uh, I think, uh, you know, my, my vision, at least my heart passion is to create sustainable models that keep people safe, that are really good at keeping people safe. Uh, ethically and, and nervous system safe, but regulating their nervous system prior to an altered state in a kind of polyvagal trauma-informed model so that we can journey with people in a group and then integrate them in a group. So I'm really interested in those that are really trying to pioneer uh, group models. So tell me a little about the work you're doing in group and uh, give me some background and what are you discovering? Thank you. And uh, great that you're already working with uh, physiology, polyvagal theory, et cetera. That's really, really helpful. Um, our first study was a group of 30 participants. Uh, we've completed that study and recently published in JAMA Oncology. I'll send you a copy of that. Okay. Um, some of the takeaways were the idea that from a healthcare um, medical setting reimbursement perspective, we must iterate and evolve the model from two doctors and one patient to optimally a group. And so we had the capability with Sunstone Therapies and this purpose-built space to have cohorts of up to four participants at a time. The uh, FDA very graciously gave us permission to have one master's level therapist per participant instead of two doctors, et cetera. And the model was partly individual therapy and partly group, meaning a hybrid model where some of the preparation was uh, in a group context. The actual sessions were the therapist and the participant each in their own private consulting room, kind of alongside one another. So peripheral to one another, but still kind of encountering one another, trips to the restroom and back, or at the end of the day, touching base briefly. And the integration sessions also were um, partly in a group context. What I was really struck by. And part of what we learned as we iterated this model was 
for example, closing with the group so people could leave together and kind of get to know one another informally, taking the elevator or exiting the building. And that this was totally randomized in the sense that in a busy oncology center that sees between 700 and 1,000 unique patients' procedures per week. So very, very busy. Um, there is now the opportunity to refer people or let people know that they're, of course, a psychiatry, behavioral health. They can see somebody like me, outpatient, and I might be helpful to them in that way. Uh, oncology, uh, nutritionist, other resources, as well as medical kind of radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, et cetera. Um, but now on the third floor, there's this purpose-built space. Mm -hmm. And we found that of these groups, which were cohorts of three or four, they really connected with one another profoundly. And that additional layer of meaningful interaction um, can only take place in a group mm -hmm. model yeah. where there are the therapists playing the role of kind of clinician therapist, but then the participants, the patients, they're interacting with one another as going into a shared experience of the unknown, uh, sharing their fears, but then supporting one another, um, offering insight, guidance to one another with the integration sessions. And I think one of the most salient takeaways for me was we decided that once a month, because there were not locally available integration resources or therapists, we would have a 90-minute call every Wednesday once a month where anyone who participated in the study could call in just to reconnect, uh, share their experience. Now, literally almost two years after completing the study, people still call in to reconnect with one another. Yeah. Um, so that shared human experience and connection is incredibly profound. Um, it gave some people courage to go more deeply because many of these uh, participants had never taken a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. uh, one woman was 76 years old. Her friends thought she was out of her mind. <laughs> what are you doing? Right. Nevertheless, she had the courage to uh, ultimately have an incredibly meaningful and profound experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so the support for one another, the sense of a crucible experience or a rite of passage, a shared journey together. Um, I love the group model and uh, hope and trust that we'll continue to learn from our mm -hmm. studies. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited about that because I think um, I think, yes, it only makes sense. Like, yes, there's a there's a, a financial reason for this, that this is allows these medicines to be accessible for people, uh, allows, uh, you know, research to have to dollars to go further. Uh, as you said, we don't need two doctors in the room for one patient. That's just a lot of money per hour. And now we're, you know, then for a treatment process that might be six sessions or more, we're talking about, you know, over $10,000 in, 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 you know, in, in funding. Well, that's just, that's not, that's not real. Like we can't do that in real life. You know, we just don't have the resources to do that. So group models are going to become the way to do, to kind of allow these medicines to come into our communities. How we do that uh, is, is, is important, how we keep people safe. But you, you mentioned something else here, which I think is really important, which is, um, 
uh, Victor Turner, who was, uh, 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 I think he was an anthropologist, he termed this, to this, co this concept of communitas. It's mm. this, it's the shared feeling that people have. He says, we, we, you get it at like a concert, right? Where everyone's at the concert and everyone's feeling this sense of we're all together at, with this moment, all dancing in unison. And you feel the sense of communitas, the connection feeling. I think this is what you're talking about. This bumping into each other in the, you know, uh, in a shared experience. I'm not the only one going through this crazy thing. I'm with others. I have courage now because I can draw from the courage of others. It's almost like a band of brothers and sisters going into this experience together. And I think we haven't researched how powerful and important those elements are in this group work. Uh, it's not just that it's going to be cheaper. I'm actually going, I believe that it's particularly psilocybin. I think it's a little different than, uh, than when you're looking at, let's say, ketamine. Ketamine being a bit more of a dissociative. Um, psilocybin is a connector. You feel connection. You feel a sense of oneness and unity. I think this medicine, as we know from indigenous communities around the world, this medicine has come to us in a container of community. You know, and so I think the more we go back to those models for thousands of years, communities have healed together. We brought, you know, fathers and mothers and children together into medicine space with the shaman to heal as community. And I think the more that we find research and looking at these other elements of communitas, connection, that we're going to realize that those are just as important as the medicine itself, you know, mm -hmm. maybe even more so that the community is the medicine, right? Yes, absolutely. And that the medicine and experiences with medicine may help people deeply kind of viscerally reconnect, remember how important that is. But then maybe part of the integration and the work ahead is um, meaningfully reconnecting with one another outside of any medicine mm -hmm. and really remembering our shared humanity, not as an abstraction, but really as we're living our lives, that sense of compassion for self and other, how how much more we are all alike than really different. I mean, our shared fears, our shared insecurities. Um, I think the more we see that um, there's so much we truly do have in common, whatever the superficial differences might appear to be. And experiencing that together because it's also a space of incredible vulnerability very much so it's huge um, yeah and so i think also that that openness to being so vulnerable um so open uh with one another is really healing like I think that is the most profound stuff, Brian. I think there's, I think our longing for connection is so profound. Uh, and I look at the institutions in our world that no longer provide that sense of the shared humanity. Our religious institutions are falling apart. You know, our families are fragmented. We are mo we're moving away from our our place, our origin of maybe where we've grown up. We no longer have the same friendship circles, and so we're in these jobs and we're very isolated from one another. Another, we may have, you know, we may have people that we watch a game with or see at the bar, but we may not have people that we share the deep, intimate things of our life with. And that's what human beings are longing for and they're missing. And if anything, COVID showed that this need for connection, that when you fragment people and isolate them, you destroy the, you know, their, 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 their social lives or their, their mental health lives go, you know, goes to pieces. And so there's an opportunity to see these medicines 
as an opportunity to reconnect people, not just with themselves, but with each other in a shared, you know, in the shared depth of the kinds of uh, the kinds of depth that these medicines can open up, right? The deepest vulnerable places of our life can now be shared with others. And it doesn't surprise me that two years later, these people are still jumping on a call going, oh, these are some of the safest people I know. I wouldn't miss this call for the world, I bet some would say, right? Um, because they've shared something profound and they feel seen. They do not feel judged. They feel seen. And maybe for some people, that might be the first time in their life. Yep. And I think when we talk about the mechanism of action or the what psilocybin does that can be so useful, when we think of this disintegration of the default mode network, whatever, what that really means is that the recurring self-referential process of thinking, me, 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 my fears, my insecurities, the tasks ahead, that repeats itself thousands of times a day in the mind, that individuality that separates us from everyone else, if that disintegrates or dissolves in a space of safety and trust and caring, then the recognition is that the other is also kind of an aspect of consciousness, somebody who one can really connect deeply with without the same fears or insecurities. And so I agree with you that um, provided it's really done in a very, very thoughtful way that maintains clear boundaries and safety and adequately prepares people, gets the dosing right, mm -hmm. things like that, yeah. that um, it is a pathway for people to um, not feel as existentially alone in the world and in their suffering and in their interpersonal interactions connect more deeply so it's not just such a superficial way of relating to others but really kind of here we are in the world together and we're not going to be here forever right right yeah and what if that like i think often we we look at you know the dsm you know manual tends to kind of program us particularly those of us in the mental health spheres um to see everyone as kind of what's their problem and what's their kind of diagnoses that we've got to kind of fix here. But what if, if we go upstream, if we move beyond that, what if we looked at these, all of these as a collection of really a, a symptoms of a disconnection that's happening in our culture, right? So that, you know, I, I, I worked in, in Ethiopia for 15 years uh, doing water projects. And, uh, and what I found is that um, they don't have the same mental health challenges as we have. It's very different. They have other challenges, but their sense of common community, their sense of a shared purpose around, you know, around a fire, around they have ceremony and ritual that bonds them and connects them at the village level. Uh, and that and what that does is it it mitigates uh, this feeling of being alone. You are part of a tribe. You're not just a lone individual trying to figure your life out. You're part of a, a vibrant community. And this is something we no longer have in, in the West. We don't have these shared spaces of connection and community anymore. We don't people. Church doesn't work for people. Religions have, you know, have, have alienated people. And so there's almost this new longing for a spirituality that uh, that that uh, that these medicines could usher in. Like I could see, I could see people saying, you know what? I've had a shared experience with psilocybin. I would love to have a monthly get together with people that have also had these shared experiences of the divine. And can we talk about that? You know, it's almost like a 
like a new church of the entheogen church, that these can be sacraments that usher people into new connections to the divine outside of, of belief. They're not cognitive belief things that we're looking to check off. They're experiential, as you said before. So exactly. I just really like what you're talking about here. This shared sense of community is really at the heartbeat of what people are longing for. And that ultimately is embodied. Um, it's not based on faith or belief in a future possibility. It's experienced in the now. Mm. So yeah. that idea of um, the present moment, and it's a very profound idea, which is almost all the activity in our mind and brain is future projecting our imagination or memory, the past, back and forth, back and forth. And it really is effortful to be present. Um, we need to engage different practices, have a desire to be more present in our lives. Um, and that idea of what, how psychedelic medicines can bring people viscerally into the present moment fully consciously, but then how that can be an inspiration. I said to one of my colleagues, in a sense, one might say that a positive experience with psilocybin can be a definitive experience of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer this abstraction where I'm supposed to observe my thoughts and I'm regulating my breathing, but it, no, it really is. This is what is real in this moment now. Mm. So the polyvagal theory, I, I'm really glad you're working with that. We actually really invite people to actively practice um, specific breathing, how to ground themselves in their body, that we'll be inviting them to welcome in the quote unquote open house of their own mind, everything, everything that manifests, light, dark, obliterating, inspiring memories of the past, trauma, and to trust that with their openness and their curiosity, that deeper wisdom within them will give to them whatever is needed to work through, even if it is very painful or whatever. Yeah. Like it's an opera, like, you know, and we, uh, we use some of Tara Brock's work, which is so helpful. Like the rain analogy, recognize, allow, investigate, nurture. We just, we, we really teach this as part of the prep so that whatever the experience is, I mean, we, again, we prep people for on average nine weeks before they're going to do a group experience. And so part of that, part of that prep is giving them the tools, almost like ground school, right? So it's like, you're going to go into outer space, but you need to, you need to know what you're, you know, when you get there, what to do rather than, well, we'll just shoot you into outer space and then I'll kind of clean it up with integration later. I don't think that's actually healthy. I think uh, we're shooting people into outer space and not giving them the tools they really need in order to get as much as they can out of that experience. And rain is a really good tool because it, it, it teaches you to say, how do I, there's this uh, book um, by Pema Chodron, I think her name is. She's a Buddhist nun. You, you know Pema? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. not personally. But yeah, wonderful. but you know of her, obviously. Yeah. She has a book. I just love the title. I think it's called The Places That Scare Us. Yes. Yes. Beautiful, right? And she just talks so much in the same way that, you know, the RAIN model is, what can I... What can I open up and allow and recognize? Okay, depression, you're here. How do I work with you? Or you're, you're this, this, the, the story you told of this person with cancer. It's like this idea of like, hey, the fears that I have, how do I welcome them in and see them as a nice fuzzy hedgehog, not fighting cancer or resisting it or 
you know, trying to crush my fears, but how do I have this recognition and an open stance to allow whatever is coming up to say, ah, oh, you're here. How do I allow that? How do I get curious about it? How do I nurture those small parts of me that get scared? Like that's a very different model than kind of resistance, right? And so these are the tools I think can be really helpful in prepping people for these kinds of altered state experiences. Absolutely a new paradigm from the symptomatic treatment of anxious distress, um, anhedonia, depressed mood, sleep disturbance to the whole person and how to help them kind of deeply reconnect with themselves and even develop a different relatedness with these quote unquote symptoms. Um, and I think that that's also what helps us be more at peace if we recognize, you know, all the thoughts in our mind are just thoughts. There's nothing we need to suppress or avoid or be ashamed of. Um, but you know that when you just say that I have this reaction because I go, we can, we, I can tell someone that about, you shouldn't be ashamed or you shouldn't, these are just thoughts. And, and you can tell someone that in a kind of a CBT kind of framework and they just don't get it. It's like, it still stays here. These experiences allow you to feel and experience that in a way that you're separate from your thoughts. And now you can have a new perspective on the fear, on the thoughts. And so I think the way you started this conversation was so profound, which, which is these medicines, we're so grateful that we have access to these medicines now that can allow people to have a different experience of themselves. Yeah, beautifully said, exactly right. And what a, what a blessing that can be for a person. Yeah. There's a wonderful quote from Gurdjieff. Um, we're one to escape from prison. The first thing you must realize is that you're in prison. <laughs> If you think you're free, no escape is possible. Mm. And so I find that quote a bit startling um, because most human beings live the entire arc of their life course into advanced old age and death in whatever way it manifests for them, um, kind of ensconced in their individuality. And they never transcend that. And so whether they have a healthy psychological profile or if they meet DSM criteria for any number of diagnoses, they're often trapped in their individuality um, in a way that is confining or limiting. And so uh, that self-transcendent possibility with psychedelic medicines, especially if they're sharing that experience with others that they bonded with, that, that, that share the courage to have this inner crucible kind of journey. Um, it really reframes relatedness as well. Mm, yeah. Have you explored or is there any interest in, uh, in doing a model whereby people could have a group experience together in the same room? Have you, have you, have you ever, uh, you know, I know with ayahuasca, you people, you know, go to big ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica and have this group experience with strangers and then try to integrate it. I'm talking about taking a group of people, connecting them prior, giving them a group experience. And then have you ever looked at that? One of the studies that we're, we've initiated with MDMA, um, MDMA of course is described as an empathogen. Mm -hmm. It's, qualitatively different in some ways than uh, psilocybin. But I've got to tell you, now that I'm doing a fair amount of work with MDMA, I'm really impressed with mm -hmm. its efficacy. Um, one of the studies is a dyad study. So a person with cancer and 
a concerned significant other. It can be a close family member, spouse, and they have two experiences with MDMA, one in adjoining rooms with their therapist and a week later together. Mm. And so MDMA, which had its origin as a medicine used in couples therapy, mm-hmm. yep. has now come full circle. And now with Sunstone, we're doing a dyad study mm. where couples, especially when one has a serious diagnosis like cancer, which carries with it um, a, a change in the life course entirely, um, for couples to be able to reconnect with this medicine and their quote unquote, shared dragon, whatever they're really contending with in their lives together. And that deep warmth and tenderness they can touch upon again, even if there's a lot of resentment or pain or fear. Um, I think that that model will also really be helpful, this dyad model with uh, MDMA in couples. I am curious around, in a medical model, what we can do with group administration, because um, I have seen the the ayahuasca ceremonies, the ketamine work groups, uh, various manifestations of like a couple of leads or a couple of shamans, a very large group of people, um, and that that has the potential to be beneficial. Um, I'm curious to see what we learn as we continue to complete these, what are called IITs or investigator initiated trials okay. to really learn more about really refining our approach and uh, what we can do with small groups mm-hmm. in the space that we have. Yeah, I think that's the, that's like, we work with groups between seven and eight max. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so two, two therapists, seven individuals on a weekly call prepping and then those two therapists join that group and then they're joined by three other uh usually a psychologist maybe a a nurse usually a medical professional and another trauma therapist maybe some somatic uh, maybe some somatic uh, worker so then they come to the experience and we put them in a circle we actually put their heads in the middle and uh and make like a spokes and so they have you know headphones and eye shades they're all on the same uh playlist in the space together and then there's these five, you know, other space holders that are attending to people as they as they need attending to. Uh, we we back the dose down because we actually because we're prepping them a lot. We we want a little bit of self energy in the room. We we don't want them so blasted off on let's say a five gram or in your case a twenty five milligram. I think they uh, you know on that and that's equivalent ish. We want a little bit of their energy in the room because it is a group experience and uh, and so. It, it, it almost what, what I'm discovering, I mean, we've done this now, we've done about 200 um, people wow. have gone through this model now. And what we're experiencing, and because we're tracking the data, we've got, an, we're using Quantified Citizen, which is an app to track uh, data we get pre, before they come into the program. They do a lot of assessments on uh, depression, PTSD, these kinds of scores. Then we do it, we get them a battery of tests just before the active experience. And then after 12 weeks and then then a follow up three months later. And so what we're discovering is that um, this what happens in the active session is there's a sense of common bonding right while they're in the same room. And as people are coming out, it almost is like an MDMA feeling. It's really interesting. There's a sense of, um, you know, especially as they're tailing from the peak, the experience is about a four hour with the way we dose 
Uh, it's it's a four hour window, not six, which really is makes it a bit easier. And there's mm-hmm. a deep bonding that happens with one another because they all, as they're coming out, they, we sit in a circle, then we integrate the experience. They do Mandela drawings and some of that, and then we eat together. And then yeah. we do a circle to end the day. Then they integrate four more weeks online. So it's that day when they're coming together in, in person that really becomes a powerful bonding for them. And it has this MDMA kind of bond that I didn't realize was going to happen. Um, and that, that's really been the catalyst for change for people is that group experience itself. Sounds like you've really developed an amazing method. Yeah, we've, it's all been, you know, trial and error and figuring it out. But now we've got a model uh, that's able to keep people safe. We're not, people aren't dysregulated. We're tracking them. Uh, they've got a community uh, to where they go back and bond back to. And then these groups, we, we after their 12 weeks, we send them off uh, with some tools to be able to stay together on the call uh, on uh, every two weeks for another three three months without facilitators because we actually want them to bond together not to you know someone uh, so then we check in with them how's that going and they're like oh it's great you've given us the tools it's a very structured what you do in the group it's not discussion based it's a trauma-informed model so it's you know the the shares are timed they're three minute shares there's a way to respond to one another and so that model has allowed it to be able to be transferable and you don't need a professional running it after they've experienced it for 12 weeks. That's really brilliant. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing that because ultimately that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. it really is. Uh, <clears throat> this Dr. Shannon Dames from uh, Vancouver Island University um, really pioneered this model with ketamine. And um, she was working uh, within a nursing program to build resilience and started using ketamine um, in that and really saw the power of a community of practice um, where you're moving the hierarchy from, you know, I'm the therapist and you're down here to I'm a facilitator in the process with you, revealing my own journey alongside of yours. So it's not like I'm going to protect my stuff and you're the ones that are have the problems. It's like, no, I'm in this journey with you. And that kind of taking the hierarchy out of it into these kind of spaces really uh, allows people to really feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. These are the, so yeah, I would love to, uh, uh, I'd I'd love to see what the potential is uh, to see what that kind of model could look like for, you know, as far as end of life patients and these kinds of things, huge Mm -hmm. potential. Um, Dr. Valia Masuda is a, a Canadian palliative care physician. And she is just doing a clinical trial with cancer end of life using this same model. Um, so getting them in groups, uh, allowing people to have an experience in these kind of end of <clears throat> these end of life folks. Um, and in Canada, we have a medical assistance and dying program called made. And um, so a lot of people uh, who are f- facing the end of their life with a lot of pain will often apply for medical assistance in dying. Um, Because they just don't want to deal with the end of life anxiety and fears. And now she is saying, she's been appealing to the Canadian government to say, um, I went with her to Ottawa and we met some members of parliament to say, Canadians have, we've given them the right to be able to end their life if they have a doctor saying, yes, these people are end of life. Surely let's give the doctors this other tool with psilocybin that they could give before medical assistance in dying. 
And so we're, that's in the works right now to try to get that ratified by our parliament, giving physicians access to psilocybin for end of life. I really hope that happens in the next six months. But what she's finding is that almost 80%, 80, and this isn't just like two or, she's done about 30 or 40 people now, 80% of them, once they have a psilocybin experience, no longer want the medical assistance in dying. Amazing. That blows me away. That blows me away. And when I asked her, I said, why do you think that is? And they said, um, I'm just, every moment is precious. And every moment is important. And I want to experience as much of it as possible. And this pain, that's just another experience for me to have. It's not suffering. Pain is different than suffering. And they get that when they have these kinds of experiences. Pain is different than suffering. And you can tell someone that, but until they experience themselves in a new way, you know, Gabor Mate says, we have to have a new relationship to ourself. And when that happens, we might have a new relationship to our disease. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So these are the, these are the things that we're discovering. And I'm, I'm excited to uh, hear that you guys are uh, doing some of this group work there at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, and um, also Sunstone Therapy is this clinic in Rockville, Maryland. Okay. In the Center. We're collaborating with Hopkins as well. Okay. okay. But um, maybe we can uh, really learn from one another. Love to uh, meet Shannon and uh, Dr. Masuda and mm -hmm. um, really kind of think about what else is possible. You yeah. could probably teach us a lot from the work you've been doing. Oh yeah, I would love to love to collaborate. I think the only way forward in in this work, I think, is to not work in silos, but to to start sharing and saying, "Listen, we need to scale this. We just don't have the luxury of waiting around and having little fiefdoms." And you know, that's this is not we can't that can't be the model forward. I've seen that in these psychedelic companies that are trying to patent some molecule and create some kind of analog where they can, and I just go, "That is so not the heartbeat of what this." medicine is about, you know, that is so opposite of, of what I long for, you know? So, um, Hey, I would love to ask you a couple more questions, Brian, tell me a little bit about how has this work with these kind of medicines, uh, increased or developed, or has it your own spiritual relationship? Very much so. Um, there's something really profound, um, just being present with a person as they're moving through an expanded state experience, um, and if it's a mystical type experience, um, it absolutely um, affects the therapist as well. So as dispassionate as we may imagine ourselves to be, there's something very profound happening in the room, sometimes in spaces of, of silence that are really profound and meaningful. Um, the, even this idea, and I don't know if it was Roland Griffiths or um, another who spoke of the idea of ontological shock, mm. meaning there's ontological shock that can occur in the participant who's having an experience of the nature of reality, ultimately being very different than they had organized their experience preceding this experience with medicine. But that can occur in the therapist as well, without question, <clears throat> myself included. And so I think that one of the key ideas, especially if I'm uh, training or lecturing, is that we must continue to grow and develop and stay healthy as therapists mm -hmm. to be helpful, to not impede or occlude or obstruct the person's own healing. Mm -hmm. 
So we must be um, honest, transparent, have good boundaries, be ethical, be thoughtful about our needs and get them met outside of the consulting room so we don't harm our patients. Mm -hmm. um, because also our patients become our teachers again and again. Um, this infinity space of consciousness as best we can describe it. I, I mean, again and again, um, people give me these absolute jewels of, of wisdom, of insight, of their own unique path to healing and personal growth. And one way I can be helpful uh, is how do we encapsulate some of those case studies, some of that wisdom that people naturally embody at one point in time, and then teach those approaches to other therapists so we can also scale um, effective psychedelic therapy. Yeah, I think there's, you know, uh, this, I, I, I remember chatting with, uh, with one person and, and I said to them, uh, you know, I asked them a question, what was the, what's the most important thing in, in psychedelic therapy? And they, without even kind of missing a beat, they would say, it's the, it's the inner life of the therapist. And I was like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And they were just saying that because this medicine is so much about attunement, this is so mm -hmm. much about trust building and about attuning nervous systems, right? So going back to Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory is that you are attuning your nervous system, you know, and regulating off of someone. And if you are anxious and you're fearful, they won't be able to attune like a, like a mother, you know? And so when you're in an altered state and you're holding that space, the most important skill in an altered state person that's holding that space is that your nervous system is regulated, that you are calm, that you are open, that you are vulnerable, that they can then attach to you in that in, and allow you to attune to your nervous system. So I love your emphasis here, Brian, on like the work of the therapist is so paramount to doing this kind of work. And so developing models that encourage our therapeutic community to stay connected to one another, to even uh, have, have their own experiences so that they can feel what it feels like to be in these heart open places uh, and to be able to internalize that themselves. So this, uh, yeah, I know it's, it feels controversial in the sense that should a therapist have an altered state experience prior to putting someone in, I 100% say yes. They need to understand this physiologically, spiritually, if they're going to lead someone into that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I would I would generally agree, although I'd want to qualify that in the in the sense that um, when we first started this work at Hopkins, um, I I didn't know, didn't ask, but um, surmised that probably some of the assistants had never had any experience with psychedelic medicine. Mm but maybe they done vision quest or sweat lodge or uh, meditation intensive um, or holotropic breathing, other pathways mm -hmm. to raise in a transient, but nevertheless, maybe very compelling expanded state. Mm. Um, I, I like the idea of a therapist optimally having a peak and a nadir experience. Mm. I mean, through the hell realms, uh, I mean, the other utter depravity of humanity's inhumanity to itself. I mean, that can be um, potentially incredibly disheartening and overwhelming, but also useful because in the darkness as well, there are things we can learn and ways we can grow. And so I think that um, it's good to have even a range of experiences with expanded states so as to be better able to empathize and understand. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think also that attunement piece, you're right. If, um, if the therapist has really done a lot of their own inner work, then they're not avoiding fearful of any aspect within themselves. There's a centeredness there that um, we embody. And so then I think people can can feel that they they sense that there's nothing they need to be kind of self-conscious about or avoidant of that really, truly everything is welcome. Because if honestly, if I'm going to be asking my patient to take a high dose and go inward, I have to be able to myself put on a pair of eye shades that occlude all light and do my own inner journey and have the courage to welcome or learn from whatever comes up or process it if it's terrifying or challenging in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we are asking a lot. I mean, I, I look around the room every time we do a ceremony and I just, I start to cry because these people are so courageous. Like these people are willing to look at things in their life that most people avoid their entire life. And here they are, they're saying, okay, I'm open, bring it. You know, it's like, trust, be open, let go. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm willing to trust the universe. I'm willing to be open to whatever my inner healing intelligence is going to bring up. And I'm willing to let go of the patterns that no longer serve me. That takes so much inner courage. And, uh, you know, and so, yes, if we are going to ask our patients, our clients to go to these deep realms, to face the dark night of the soul, so, be, so they can maybe connect with this exile inside of them that's maybe never been, been, able, been able to access because of trauma or abuse, they're going to do that. I want to be able to know that the people holding space have also said, yeah, we've also gone here. We've also looked inside, you know? So I think there's, uh, I think as we see this model move forward there in, into our, into the community, right. And to say, what would it look like as we work with first responders? What will it look like as we work with, um, clergy? You know, I know Johns Hopkins did a, did a study looking at, uh, um, spiritual leaders. Uh, I, a good friend of mine, Hunt Priest has started Ligari oh, oh. ministry. I've had him Hunt. on. Yeah. You know, Hunt. Yeah. 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 So Hunt's been a great inspiration for me. And uh, my background is Christianity and he's really helped me not be embarrassed about that uh, and realizing, yes, as a minister, uh, there's lots of realm, lots of the part of Christianity that uh, has been really hurtful and very patriarchal and very othering. And yet that's not the kind of faith that I have any interest in. And yet the symbols of Christianity, the teachings of Christ are aligning with these ideas that are, that I'm, I'm experiencing these, these altered states. So um, I, I really think there's potential for our spiritual leaders to have experiences and then to be able to work with their, you know, their parishioners, you know, can imagine if, if, uh, yeah, if Christian and other spiritual communities uh, started, you know, understanding the power of these medicines and they got trained, clergy were trained on how to do this work with the dying or how to do this work with people that are in deep, deep, you know, angst. So I think that there's huge potential for where this medicine can be used in, in kind of communal ways. And I'm excited about spiritual communities using it in a healthy way. I agree. And if religious leaders, if that could once again um, become acceptable, even um, important. So if we think about our shared human history, um, Brian Mirror Rescue's book, uh, The Immortality Key. It's right here. Best oh, book, really? by the way. Best. Can we just pause for one second and talk? Can we just nerd out on how freaking good that book is? I'm so amazed. Yes, me too. What a wonderful contribution to the field. Wow. 
one of the takeaways from that book is that the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece continued unabated for two wow. millennia. That's amazing. So, I mean, it's already happened that in one part of the world for 2,000 years, generation after generation after generation, wars come and go, famine, upheaval, pestilence, whatever. And for 2,000 years, the Eleusinian mysteries, anyone who had not committed a capital offense could make a pilgrimage to Eleusis and participate in the ritual and that mystery. Any citizen. Yeah. And so... I think here we are remembering and once again bringing into our culture now in a country that's 250 years old, the idea of kind of a deeper journey or connectedness and and how that can be done in a way like across systems where it it's meaningful, it's valuable, it's respectable to do. Uh, people want to do it. They want to self-actualize and whatever their outer achievements might be, be at peace with themselves, mm -hmm. feel a connection with other people, uh, live fully. Uh, so whatever legacy they create and leave the world is a meaningful one, whatever that may be. Yeah. Um, I think those ideas of meaning and purpose, which are so important, um, those arise pretty spontaneously and naturally with psychedelic medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're maybe on the cusp of medical systems, religious systems, um, both kind of learning in their own way what that expression will be mm -hmm. of psychedelic medicine. Yeah. No, I think that Brian's uh, Brian's book, The Immortality Key, was such a, a profound, um, pro such a profound statement, not just for Christians, but for anyone in the West that realizes we don't have to necessarily just go to indigenous communities to find that these medicines have been used in indigenous communities. These medicines were used in the birthplace birthplace of of democracy. They were used in the thriving cities, you know, of Athens and Greece and all around the empire. And as Eleusis was, you know, uh, uh, as as that that as that mystery was going on, it began to be integrated into Christianity. And that's his argument: is that the Dionysian, you know, rituals began to be part of what the Eucharist meant as women and grandmothers served the Eucharist in these under ground churches in the first 300 years and would uh, we have these vessels now scraping with this electro um, uh, these these le these microscopes are these uh, sorry these laser uh they can scrape off these elements and find yes there's lsd ergot root mushroom inside these wine that were used in the christian you know early ceremonies and again i can see it happening because at the heartbeat of the christian message is unless you in essence take up your cross and follow me it's death and resurrection it's the letting go and it's the rebirth you know, it's that's the at the end of the day, that's the themes we're asking for people to come when they come into a psilocybin group. You're asking them to look at what do I need to die to? What do I need to let go of right now that's no longer serving me? And what am I going to be reborn to in my life? 
And I, and so that to me, death and resurrection, I can see why that was traced through the Dionysian, uh, you know, Eleusinian mysteries into the early church. And then it gets obviously crushed by Rome as we cannot have women serving the Eucharist. We cannot be using altered states. It has to only be in a, in a, in a church. So we can begin to see how this goes underground and, uh, and the violence that comes about from that. So yeah, his work to me is it hasn't even touched the surface yet of what the potential is of his scholarship. So I'm excited for where that's going to go. And, and fascinating that some of these newer chemistries or newer sciences like archaeobotany, yeah. archaeochemistry, and the, the ability to assay some of these pottery shards, as you said, now are kind of supporting this hypothesis mm -hmm. that it really is true that, um, this is not a new invention that many different cultures worldwide um, really have sought uh, kind of sacramental experiential medicine and had different decoctions and different syntheses of various plants that were psychoactive in different ways. Um, and maybe from that, we can also surmise that all of us kind of have a curiosity, what is the unknown and how can we go a little deeper? Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, many, many scholars would argue, particularly as you look at indigenous cultures, that trance-based learning has been part of human evolution from the, the earliest cave paintings, that we have realized that to alter your consciousness has been really an important part of what it means to be human. This isn't just about healing. This is about what it means to be human at the most fundamental basis of what it means to be human is that the ability to stand outside of oneself and to feel a collective kind of uh, experience in an altered state. Now, that's a very interesting idea. And I think, you know, looking at the last 60 years of the war on drugs post Nixon, you have this an outlying, uh, outlawing of the idea of being in an altered state as part of, you know, healing or, or, or medicine. And, uh, and yet I think there's a resurgence now, an interest and an openness to seeing that not just this is going to be for mental health, which is clearly medical, we need this, we need this, but this isn't where this is going to land. This is going to be part of what it means to be creative, what it means to be a good parent. You know, can you imagine rites of passages for a father and a son to go out and to say, you are going to be part of a group and you're going to be taking psilocybin in the forest. You'll be, our fathers will be around you, but you are going to face your own humanity uh, and your own, you know, your own depth as an 18 year old man. Um, we don't have rites of passage for young men anymore. And we wonder why they're uh, they're just random and chaos that are going inside these young men. They've never had rites of passage. And so I think these medicines are opening up the opportunity to see these kinds of tools used in different ways than just medical. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. What gets you excited as you look toward the future, Brian? What are you, uh, for your research and what you're doing at Sunstone and, and Johns Hopkins, what are, yeah, what's, what's kind of animating you and getting you pumped? So I'm really grateful to be working in the medical model. Um, as I think of what will likely happen in the next few years, there will be all these maybe state-by-state -state initiatives, but um, there will definitely be a need for people to be able to have a $20 copay for a series of procedures that are, um, I mean, multiple skilled staff across different disciplines in a medical setting uh, providing psychedelic medicine. There will be probably a lot of um, risk evaluation, 
evaluation mitigation kind of requirements around the, how the medicine is dispensed and stored, et cetera, that will relegate, um, at least in the healthcare systems, the, the initial prescription of psilocybin and MDMA to specialty centers that really have the staffing and capability to um, provide these medicines in a consistent, effective way. Um, so that's a, a big, I mean, Gordian knot problem to solve is how do we get through all the regulatory requirements? How do we operationalize this so that somebody can decide that they're open to learning more about psychedelic medicine and they can come up to the third floor of the Aquilino Cancer Center and interface with some of the staff and get a sense of of those people and a sense of safety and then determine for themselves if they're interested in MDMA or LSD or 5-methoxy-DMT or psilocybin, et cetera, mm -hmm. and kind of continue their own path of healing and personal growth. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to be working in this context because I, I find it remarkably challenging. We're still problem solving. We're still figuring out what the medical model expression of this will be. What I also really appreciate about it um, is that it will ensure the safety and well-being of patients because everyone is trained and they are accountable, meaning it's video monitored in real time, there's supervision, there's layers and layers to ensure, you know, if there is an adverse event, we can respond effectively, even if it requires medical intervention. However, unlikely that may be, we can still be effective immediately if needed. So I think um, there are these different streams um, that all of which are important. And like certainly people that I've interacted with who've been on retreats, myself included, have found them very meaningful and beneficial or workshops with ketamine. Those I've found very meaningful and beneficial. Uh, so not to disparage anything, but um, I'm glad that at least whatever contribution I make to the world, I'm glad to be working in the medical space because I also see that as um, something we really need to do effectively uh, for it to then become a part of the culture. Because ultimately what we're hoping for is that the narrative around death and dying changes and it's no longer just fear-based or doctors aren't trained just to put off death interminably with every expense, every effort until death is inevitable and the person has had negligible quality of life for weeks or months and massive, massive expenditure just to prolong life by a few days, a few weeks. Why are we doing that? Um, if we accept the inevitability of death, if it, if it becomes part of the culture, part of what we look at. If we have experiences of dying too, those parts of us that no longer are helpful or needed, mm -hmm. um, if we have the courage to look inward, if these medicines are used in a way that really help us experientially um, move through those expanded states beyond name and form, then in a sense, the casting off of one's physical body. I, I guess what I'm really struck by is, again, anecdotally, from some of the people I've worked with, <clears throat> if they go deep enough, it's almost like this revelation. Like, how could I have forgotten that? Like, I, I didn't have a form before I came here. And, you know, of course, this body will ultimately fail. 
and I will come and go. But I, having had a remembrance with an experience where they can't find their physical body anywhere, they can't remember the story in their mind about who they were, and yet they're clearly experiencing consciousness in a state beyond attachment to identification with the physical body or their personal story. That's really, really helpful because then the reference point shifts. And so then life after that, especially if the person values the experience and integrates it and has community to share with others what that was like, then in a sense, discarding the fear of death comes somewhat naturally because it's like, um, I guess it, people language it in various ways, but um, it's a it's easier to feel less afraid once a person has had an experience beyond name and form. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, I've been uh, an executive producer of a film called Dose 2. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or heard it or yet, but it's-, it's I've heard uh, of it, I have yet to yeah. see it. Yeah, it's uh, so it yeah, I, I filmed a friend of mine who's dying of cancer, uh, and Lori, mother of four and, and had this, uh, you know, with a thera therapeutic experience with psilocybin, uh, and just dealt with this issue of cancer and, and her inevitable dying. And she had a profound reorientation toward herself, toward cancer, toward death. And then what she was left with was just the beauty of life in each moment. That, you know, that it wasn't like, what if I don't see my daughter married? It's like, I get to live this moment and I'm aware of that and I'm living it. I'm not living in the one I may not get. You know, that's 10 years from now. Who That doesn't even exist yet. And you talked about presence, about being mindful, about being in each moment. These medicines can allow it to be, and we're talking about one session. Now she ended up having two, two one, two years later, but we're talking about one, we're not talking about a pill you get every, it's not chemo. It's a one-time experience that can reorient your entire you know, perspective toward death and dying so that you can have a completely different way of interacting with yourself, with your family and with your disease. And that's what I think you guys are really pioneering uh, at, at Hopkins. And, and, uh, and so based on that, we, we did this film and we really hope people can see it and watch it and, and uh, see it. Um, I wanna end with one comment um, and get your thoughts on it. Recently, sure. Roland Griffiths has uh, you know, talked about his own cancer diagnosis. And uh, you know, he has done almost, you know, you know, you, him and your father have really uh, been the pioneers at Hopkins there to develop this, this model and, and this research center. And he said recently uh, that he is really interested in looking at kind of what he calls a secular spirituality. Um, a new spirituality using these kind of medicines that allow people to feel connected and kind of bonded in spiritual ways without the dogma uh, of religion. Uh, have you, what are your thoughts on that? Has that been something that you guys have uh, looked at or wanted to study? Um, you know, I hope to meet and talk with Roland again and get a better understanding of um what that is through his eyes and his intention of a secular spirituality. I was not a contributor to the religious leaders study um, that at some point will be impressed. That's been a pretty much written up, but um, I wish I could talk more about that. Mm. Um, we, at least in the medical context, 
we invite people if they do come in with a spiritual faith uh, to kind of deepen and continue that. Um, or if they happen to be agnostic or atheist, that's fine too. So our focus has not been explicitly religious or not religious. Yeah. And I think also, at least in the medical context where I work, some of the life sciences companies that we're working with, um, they, as part of their understanding, try very hard to be entirely secular and avoid any mention of the mystical because as they think of their worldwide efforts to market a medicine, for example, it could be really politically counterproductive to uh, have an ethos of trying to be religious or spiritual. Um, so I think one of the challenges in the medical model is that people resolutely will have experiences that for them personally are profoundly spiritual. Um, but then how do you reconcile that with right. uh, some of the norms of these systems and what uh, kind of can occasion a sense of alarm in management? Um, so I think the, mm. the path we're taking is really um, resolutely, for example, working with people who have a cancer diagnosis of any stage and are diagnosed with major depression. And then we assess their depression post-drug and with his first study, 50% of participants had complete remission of depression, 80% were attenuated in their symptoms. What that means from a medical perspective is that um, people who are depressed are often non-compliant with their treatment regimen, they die earlier, they don't tolerate their, their medicine or surgery as well. There are all these potential complications in the 25% of cancer patients who become clinically depressed. So I think um, what we'll probably continue to do is kind of within that model, maybe not be as erudite as we could be around religion and spirituality. But I appreciate uh, Roland and his efforts and Hopkins and the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research, that they really are asking those questions much more openly mm. uh, because we do need institutions that um, have the ability to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you know, I just that's a very interesting line to walk, and and you know, I, I get it. You're like, man, we don't want to alienate people, and yet it's so funny when you know because you can you can you can be doesn't matter who you are, and you're like, well, um, you want to take five grams, and then we can talk, and you're gonna have a profound mystical experience. It's just. It's the language. What language are you going to put on that? And I think psychological language is really hard, right? So it it it's, it doesn't it doesn't give the container. It's not big enough container. And so I think what we're finding is that these um, other models, and whether it's um, just call it non-dual training, you know, understanding that in non-duality, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be religious, but this idea of a transcendent experience of oneness, uh, of unity. We need to train our guides that this is going to be, you know, 75 to 80 percent of people are going to have these non-dual experiences and we don't have language for it. So you need to prepare them for it. And so there can be some training and and we know these ancient traditions 
Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, you know, that we have these in the mystical traditions, we have language to help us understand what these altered states are and what happens and why they, you know, why they seem so profound and, uh, and, and, and powerful for people. So yeah, it's going to be interesting as this rolls forward to see what a culture, a medical model interacting with a real indigenous uh, kind of medicine, really, right? It's these we have this notion, uh, talk about two-eyed seeing, which is one lens is the best of Western science and the other lens is the best of, of indigenous wisdom and spirit-based kind of wisdom. And wow. so uh, one thinker in Canada developed this language of two-eyed seeing that we, re that we really need right now in, in, this kind of, uh, in this kind of medicine work. And so yeah, I'm very curious where all this stuff is going to, how this is going to play out. But uh, thank you so much, Brian. Is there any other, any other things you wanted to make sure you shared? I really love this conversation. We've had a lot of fun today. Oh, me too, Peg. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here and uh, really appreciate your time as well today. Well, thank you so much, Brian. We've been talking with Dr. Brian Richards, who is uh, research uh, with Sunstone uh, Therapies and working with Johns Hopkins in their lab and working with end-of-life patients with psilocybin in groups. I'm really excited about some of the work that you are producing. Again, thank you so much for coming on Unveiled, and I really wish you all the best as you continue to pioneer important work in this field to help people that uh, in, in ways that this medicine is uniquely designed to help people ex experience uh, their disease and their, uh, and their relationship with death in a whole new way.